welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I am delighted to be joined by Jorge Marti. He is the hands of Venezuela's Secretariat. Thank you for joining us, Jorge. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Now, it's the end of 2021. I think it's appropriate that we begin with perhaps a review of what have been some of the highlights of this year in terms of resistance. And perhaps we could start with the latest, you know, the um, movement of the farmers in India and how this movement has not only inspired, but, you know, perhaps re-injected some of our social movements with a little energy. Yes, in fact, this this movement of the farmers in India, which uh, in fact started at the end of 2020, I think it was in September when the first protest came about, uh, it has been a really very inspiring uh, movement. And to my surprise, or I was a little bit surprised that the movement ended up in a victory. So recently, the government of Modi completely repealed the the law that they had introduced, which had uh, caused this movement. Many big movements uh, in terms of the workers and peasants happen around around the world, but very few of them achieve any uh, any victories. It's very difficult in the face of the capitalist crisis to achieve a victory, and this is, I think, very significant. The movement of the of the farmers in India started because of the change in the law, uh, which up until that point guaranteed certain minimum prices for the crops to the farmers from the state. And uh, this was now going to be abolished. So the farmers were going to be left at the mercy of the of the market. And it was clear that they were going to be completely destroyed by the multinationals, which were going to impose really low prices on them, putting, them, putting many of them in, into bankruptcy. Uh, and this is not a surprise. It's a process that's been happening around the world, deregulation, privatization, lifting of subsidies, and so on. But uh, what was really amazing was to see the response of the farmers. The farmers are not necessarily a very well-organized group in uh, India, but this time they, they got themselves organized in uh, farmer unions. They organized a big movement. Uh, they marched on the, on the capital, Delhi, on uh, National Independence Day. They organized mass demonstrations, road blockades, sit-ins, and so on. They basically used uh, methods of mass action. Uh, against the government, and uh, for for a very long period of time, uh, and the government was was unable, despite the use of repression, uh, hundreds, dozens of people were killed during the the movement. Hundreds died in different circumstances as part of it. Um, for instance, on on National Independence Day, the government wanted to prevent the farmers from reaching the capital, and they were unable to do so. The, the farmers uh, broke through police riot police lines. And, uh, and uh, road blockades, and, and basically they, they inspired a big movement. This is not the only movement that has taken place in India. We have also seen in, in the last two years at least two massive general strikes with the participation of over 100 million uh, workers 
And this movement of the farmers started to link up with the working class. There was even a call for a, for a hartal, a, a, a nationwide general strike. Although this didn't materialize, but it's clear that the movement of the farmers was having a big impact on, on the working class. And finally, the government, just a few weeks ago, was forced to uh, back down and uh, repeal the, the proposed uh, law and maintain the, the system of, of uh, basic prices, guaranteed prices for, for the crops, for the farmers. I think that this is very, is very important. India is a very large country, one that has experienced rapid economic growth over the last 10 years. But economic growth has been based on massive disparity of wealth, massive inequality. And uh, also the other feature about India is that the election of the Modi government, which is a right-wing, a very, very right-wing government. You could compare it to the Bolsonaro or Trump, uh, which has also the backing of the of a far-right, openly fascist uh, Hindu party, uh, was seen as a turn to the right and, and, a, and a hopeless situation by many. But even in this situation, uh, there was the development of the mass movement of the workers first and then the farmers. I think that this is uh, very important, very significant. And it's part of a more general trend we have seen in the last one in the last one year. We have seen mass movements in in Colombia, in Burma, in Thailand, uh, in many other countries. The continued movement in Algeria, big protests in uh, Lebanon. It's been 2021, which has been still marked by the pandemic, but at the same time, it's been marked in many different places by mass movements and uh, even election victories for the left. Speaking of elections, I wonder if you could comment on your response to Britain's uh, refusal to return the gold to Venezuela despite the government of uh, Maduro winning an election with a landslide majority. Yeah, this is a really scandalous situation which has been now going on for several years. And there's been a whole number of court cases, uh, appeals and counter-appeals. This latest decision has gone against the Venezuelan government, the only Venezuelan government that exists, really, because uh, it is completely farcical to say that uh, Juan Guaido has a government. Two years ago, when he proclaimed, or nearly three years ago now, when he proclaimed himself a president of, of Venezuela, he had no legitimacy. Uh, he had no constitutional basis for his declaration. He stood up in a public rally in a public square and he said, hey, I'm the president of Venezuela. It's a complete farce. And the only, the only reason he was accepted as such by many Western governments is because he had the backing of U.S. imperialism. I mean, in the last few weeks, even uh, uh, Borges, one of the closest collaborators of Guaido, he said he... He was uh, repudiating Guaido, he, that there was a need for an investigation on embezzling funds that were given to the Venezuelan opposition. There's no, uh, he doesn't have a leg to stand on, and Guaido is completely discredited, not only amongst Venezuelans, but amongst uh, opposition supporters as well. The opposition decided, to, even the reactionary pro-US uh, opposition decided to participate in the elections. Guaido was left out. He never had any legitimacy, but now he doesn't have any support at all. And so in these circumstances, for a British court to still say that it is disputed who 
has a, a legitimate claim to this uh, gold in the Bank of England is a complete scandal. J- just to recap on this story, uh, these uh, gold reserves the Venezuelan Central Bank had deposited in uh, the Bank of England for safekeeping many years ago, decades ago. It has nothing to do with, uh, with the Bolivarian Revolution or the current political events in Venezuela. This money was there for safekeeping, as, uh, as are the gold reserves of several other countries uh, kept in the Bank of England for safekeeping. And then at one point, this self-proclaimed uh, clown, Juan Guaido, he said that uh, uh, he appointed some people to his own central bank. Central bank that has no, no real power, no real existence, but just a figment of his imagination. And on this basis, the British government, uh, under pressure or under the guidance of the U.S. government, which we now uh, know because this has been published in, in Bolton's uh, mem- memoirs, Bolton's uh, book about his time in the Trump, Trump administration, uh, he says clearly that it was the United States that put pressure, approached the British government, so that this money in the form of gold uh, lingots will not be given to the to the Venezuelan government of, of President Maduro, the only Venezuelan government that exists. Um, and so they decided, I mean, this is completely illegal from any point of view. Uh, the, the, this this uh, gold doesn't belong to the Bank of England, doesn't belong to the British government. Uh, it belongs to the, to the Venezuelan Central Bank. Further to this, the Venezuelan government said that they were going to put this money uh, proceeds from this gold in a separate account under the control of UNICEF, the, the World Organization for Children, so that it could be used to alleviate the effects of the economic crisis in Venezuela, uh, a large part of, of it, which, which can, be, can be attributed to U.S. sanctions on, on Venezuela and economic uh, embargo and uh, the, the blockade of oil sales and so on. So they said, look, I mean, if you have a problem with the Venezuelan government, we're not going to be part of handling these uh, resources. We're going to give it straight to the UNICEF so that we can alleviate the impact of economic crisis in Venezuela on on children. And still the British government and and the Bank of England refused to hand over this money. And now this is the latest episode of this saga where the High Court has uh, ruled against an appeal from the Venezuelan government or rather the other way around. The last round was won by the Venezuelan government. The Juan Guaido lawyers appealed against this, against that ruling, and now they have won another appeal. This is a complete scandal. It's basically uh, daylight poverty uh, of, uh, by the Bank of England of money that doesn't really belong to them in, in any way. But why should we be surprised, right? The the work of empire has always been about theft, you know, stealing from other nations and taking what doesn't belong to them. Um, I wonder if we could uh, circle back to your comment about revolutionary movements. One of the most striking movements was the movement in Colombia where, you know, we have such a stronghold by the U.S. military, and yet... We saw so many sparks of people, you know, organizing, coming together. And can we talk about the impact of the social movements in Latin America to reignite not only a vision of a world with justice for people, but also a repudiation of neoliberalism and the doctrine of austerity? Yeah, I think that this is a common thread 
through the movements in, in Latin America. Uh, you can see this in Chile, where, where people rose up two years ago, and they were saying this is not about 30 pesos, which was the increase in the fare of public transport in in Santiago, which sparked the movement. This, this is not about 30 pesos, this is about 30 years. That is 30 years of what's been known as neoliberal policies. In, in reality, these are the policies of, of capitalism in its epoch of uh, crisis, policies of privatization of, of state assets, privatization of state-owned uh, companies, the dismantling of uh, healthcare system, the privatization of uh, pensions, the dismantling of public uh, state education, and so on. And this is a common thread. Uh, the, these policies were implemented throughout Latin America. These policies were implemented throughout throughout the world by, by Thatcher, Reagan, uh, and so on for the last 30 years, and these policies have, have uh, destroyed uh, much of what was known as, as the welfare state in some advanced capitalist countries. But even in countries of Latin America where not much of a, of a welfare state ever existed, the same policies were implemented, and this created a, a situation where there's uh, an extreme polarization of wealth, massive inequality. Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the OECD, OECD. And this was also the case in uh, Colombia, but Colombia is a bit particular because Colombia, as you say, is closely linked to U.S. imperialism. There are seven U.S. military bases in, in Colombia. There is the famous Plan Colombia, military uh, port and resources by the United States in uh, Colombia. The British government is also involved in training and funding the police, the riot police in Colombia and so on. And at the same time, Colombia is one of the countries where the ruling class is more reactionary and uh, brutal in its methods. The, the ruling class in Colombia is a compound, is, is a, like a coalition of uh, cattle ranchers, uh, people who are involved in narco trafficking, and uh, they use not only the state uh, apparatus, the police, the army, and so on, against the workers and peasants and youth, they also use paramilitary gangs, which act with impunity, which are linked to the state apparatus, the army, and so on. And so it's really brutal. Uh, Colombia is said to be the, the most dangerous country in, in country in the world to be a trade unionist in. And even so, despite all of this, there was a massive movement, the, the national strike, as it was known, the Paro Nacional which started uh, at the end of April this year against the uh, reform of the tax system, which will have uh, unloaded the, the burden of the pandemic spending on on working people and, uh, and the middle class. And so people just said enough is enough, and they came out on the streets. And, and at the beginning, this was supposed to be a protest for one day, a April 28th, but then it started continued, continued for, for basically three months despite brutal police repression, despite the use of the army against the protesters, for instance, in Cali and other places, despite the fact that trade union leaders were not very keen on this movement taking place at all, uh, the people got organized. They organized uh, self-defense of these demonstrations against riot police. And it was an extraordinary movement, which completely destroyed the legitimacy and support for the government of uh, Duque. This had been relatively popular government before. Now now it was competing with uh, Piñera in Chile for the most hated government in, in Latin America. And it's preparing the way for the election of a, of a progressive government 
in the elections next uh, year. Well, what people wanted was not a new election. What they wanted is to get rid of the whole system and the whole regime. But in any case, the, the movement did not uh, end up in a, in a complete victory, but it managed to make people understand, realize their own strength, uh, the fact that they could challenge the government and not be defeated and smashed. And it was really inspiring because many people in Latin America were thinking after this movement, they were thinking, well, if, if this can happen in Colombia, if the government of Colombia, which is one of the most repressive and brutal in, in the continent, cannot put down the Colombian people when they rise up, this is an inspiration for everyone. And, uh, and we can do the same thing. I mean, once we lose our fear, we, we realize that the power has always been with the people. The people have power to create the societies they want to see. One of the inspiring things for me has been how the Venezuelan people have withstand not only the repression of austerity that the U.S. has imposed on them by sanctions, uh, the military attempts that they have tried to bring down the government, but the way the community continues to gather and thrive. Can we talk a little bit about the not only what, what moves uh, the people uh, in unison, what, what, why is Venezuela able to withstand such repression and still continue to impose you know, their sovereign will and, and demonstrate to the world that they are a people who are free to choose who they want to govern the government, their, their country? I think that the main main factor in Venezuela today is that despite all the difficulties, despite the economic crisis, despite, and I have to say this, despite the fact that uh, I think that the, the Maduro government has been shifting to the right for the last uh, five, six, nearly 10 years in power, uh, I think it's eight years now, uh, despite all of this, the, the legacy of the Venezuelan revolution is extremely powerful. This this was uh, uh, the first country to rise up against neoliberalism, uh, the policies of, of, of capitalism in crisis in, in 89. And then and then it was the first country in Latin America to, to turn the, the tide with the election of a very left-wing uh, government, the government of Chavez, Hugo Chavez in 1998. And uh, that period, the period when Chavez was in power, was a period of profound transformation, not, not only in terms of material, the material conditions. There was many improvements in terms of housing, education, healthcare, and many others, <clears throat> but, but mainly in terms of the political consciousness of the people. There was a very radical anti-imperialist uh, mood. As you say, the, the, the determination to defend the national sovereignty of uh, Venezuela, not to allow who was going to be the president of, of Venezuela, which might seem like an obvious thing, but it wasn't the case before. And, and the Venezuelan people defeated the coup, which was U.S.-backed and sponsored in 2002, in April. Uh, and then they, <clears throat> they proceeded to carry out a very thoroughgoing transformation of society. They experimented with workers' control, with direct uh, power in the communities, the creation of communes, the redistribution of land. And, and uh, also from 2005, Chavez started talking about socialism. He said, look, I mean, we cannot achieve our aims of improving the living standards of the people without going beyond capitalism, and we must go towards socialism. And, and this opened up a big debate in Venezuela. Millions of people were involved in discussing 
what socialism is, what, what it is not, what does it mean, what does it mean for the economy, what does it mean for the state. And uh, I think that despite everything, the last six or seven years since 2014, more or less, have been really, really <clears throat> difficult. The economy has collapsed by 80%. Millions of people have been forced to emigrate, uh, partly because the economic uh, sanctions, which started in 2017, were aggravated in 2019, uh, partly because of the sabotage of the, of the ruling class in Venezuela against the uh, left-wing government that was intervening in the economy. But despite all of this, this uh, consciousness remains. And the Venezuelan people are not prepared to allow anyone to tell them who, who's going to be the president other than themselves. This is why Guaido was defeated uh, nearly three years ago when he proclaimed himself. He started the movement that had the backing of U.S. imperialism. They had links with, with layers in, inside the army in Venezuela. And despite all of this, they were defeated. They couldn't achieve the, the aims. And, and I think it's down to the resilience of the Venezuelan people. And the resilience of the Venezuelan people is uh, down to this revolutionary process that took place in the first decade or 15 years of, of the 20th century, a very thorough revolutionary process that was never completed, but nevertheless had a deep impact on, on consciousness and on the living conditions of millions of people whose lives were completely transformed. When you look at Venezuela, the way it turned it around, the way it changed the level of illiteracy in the country, the way it has transformed um, fear into community organizing, into community coming together to help each other, that, that's really inspiring. And I think it's really that poses not only a threat to capitalism, but also that inspires people everywhere to aspire to create a society that is from the bottom up. What other movements? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, there's no no doubt about what you what you're saying. The Venezuelan Revolution was extremely inspiring through, throughout Latin America, and uh, this is the reason why they organized a coalition first through the Organization of American States, then then through the Lima group of countries to try to sabotage, contain, and and destroy the Venezuelan Revolution. Yes, it's uh, was an extremely inspiring. Uh, 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 movement that was was attempted to to be replicated throughout yeah. Latin America. I wonder also if we could talk a little bit about uh, social movements within Western countries because we see that although Latin American people are repressed by bullets, by hunger, by violence, yet they continue to rise and mobilize. And a lot of the time, the judgment against workers in Western countries is that, you know, we are separated. We're this, you know, we're we're not as united with each other. And then when you think about people on the left, sometimes yes, you're anti-capitalist, but people are not pro-workers. You know, so there is a missing link, and that is the ability to create community, to create a sense of well-being for our neighbors, to want to care for them. How do you see that unfolding in some of the movements in perhaps Europe or North America? In in Europe, the the turning point was the 2008 financial uh, crisis. It was after the hammer blow of that uh, crisis came uh, big movements, in, particularly around 2011. It was not only the the Arab Spring and the uprisings against the dictators in Egypt, in Tunisia, and so on. 
But also we, we saw the big movement of the indignados in, in Spain, the Occupy movement in North America, uh, the Syntagma Square movement in uh, Greece. And these were movements along the lines of what you were saying. Uh, people were coming out on the streets. They were saying, look, we need to put uh, people's needs before profits. And uh, this was, I will say, the, the consequence of these uh, massive austerity programs that were implemented after the 2008 uh, crisis. Then later on, these this movements of 2011 gave rise to new political formations, uh, which were successful to different degrees in different countries. Sanders in uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States, Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, Syriza in uh, in uh, and Cyprus in Greece, uh, Melenchon in uh, Italy and sorry in France, and then Podemos in Spain. Here in North America, in Turtle Island, with Canada aggression towards indigenous people, we saw how at the beginning of the year of uh, 2020, the indigenous communities came together in response to a new uh, pipeline that is being forced to unceded territory. And they literally were so effective, they had shut down almost the entire you know economy in the in Canada they they blocked the railways they and they were very effective and you know covid happened and one strike after another you know you've seen communities being pushed back here in British Columbia we see the Wasuetan people being arrested on mass by the RCMP it's really hard to expect people to withstand that kind of violence right and not to feel sometimes a little deflated like you need to go and grow your strength again right it's it's really hard to expect people to just hold on to the death you know and so i i have empathy and i have sympathy for movements who uh, move us but i i think that you know it's never lost because every single one of those movements that rise up in my opinion continue to stay lit up you know they may not be in flames the whole time but you know as we have seen with Venezuela you know it continues to be a beacon of inspiration so as we come to the end of 2021 what are some of your um, inspiring moments and what you hope to see blossom in 2022? Yes, to, to me, one of the most inspiring moments of 2021 is the, the national strike in uh, in Colombia. As I said, this was perhaps the most unlikely country where a movement like that was going to happen. Another inspiring movement was the defeat of the right candidate, the, the pro-Pinochet candidate in the elections in Chile, because in the first round, it seemed like everything was lost. The, the far-right candidate was ahead by a small margin, and nevertheless, uh, people responded in a very clear way. There was a mobilization of people who had not voted in the first round, and, and the far-right candidate was uh, clearly defeated, 55 to 45. The, the, the one thing we should never lose is our faith in the ability of working-class people to rise up uh, to the occasion, uh, be up to the task that is posed by the moment, and, and fight back. This is quite clear. And I'm saying this, I'm mentioning this because I think that this is what's coming now. Many countries are coming out of the pandemic, although there's now this Omicron variant, which, uh, which changes things. But as the economy started to come out of the, of the pandemic in, in August this year, 
there has been a, a big increase in uh, inflation and many workers now feel that they have to fight uh, to recover the purchasing power of their wages. And we have seen strikes like that. We have seen the John Deere strike in, in the United States, the Carpenter strike in Seattle, and a whole number of strikes in the United States, in uh, several European countries, where I think that now is the time when the working class will come onto the scene. Many of these strikes are very militant. Quite a few of them are taking place against the trade union bureaucracy. And I think that this is something we should be looking forward to in, in 2022. I think that this is going to be the, let's, let's say, the, the year of the working class, when the working class... Thank you again for being with us. It's a pleasure, as, uh, as always. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwaysmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.